Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we have Paradox Shell and podcaster extraordinaire, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. So, this week I'm Paradox Shell, and other weeks I'm founder of Three Moves Ahead. That's nice to know exactly how you feel about me this week. You gotta change it, you gotta change it up. You know, okay. like, it keeps you on your toes. It really does. It's nice to have the introduction shift a bit. It is good to be here on a very sunny but still cool Tuesday afternoon. I am so envious of you saying that right now because, like, I am sitting here in basically a swamp. Uh, Boston has turned into a summertime hellscape from which I cannot escape. Uh, so, congratulations on being Canadian. Congratulations on still being in civilization. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we welcome our old friend Chris King of Crispin Games and uh, the game designer of Victoria 2. Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Rob. Good evening, everyone. Today we're going to be talking about crisis diplomacy and crisis management and uh, sort of escalating tensions in international relations in video games. Uh, and kind of the, this is kind of a... This is, this is kind of setting up what we're going to be doing for at least some of the month of August uh, for the centennial of World War I. We're going to be looking at uh, how events uh, related to World War I are handled in games. We'll probably be trying to look at some uh, particularly good games that uh, touch on that subject. But since, this is, since things really started rolling in July of 1914, uh, this seems a good time to sort of revisit the July crisis and sort of talk about uh, how games approach things like you know, complex uh, you know, balances of power and escalation problems in international relations because, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about diplomacy on this show, and diplomacy is, is handled uh, in, in a lot of different strategy games, but what you don't see quite as much, I think, is some of those really interesting uh, great power dynamics that kind of make uh, international relations history uh, so interesting to read. So, you know, Chris, I, wa I wanted to start with you a, a little bit because, uh, you know, obviously with your work on Victoria 2, and then we're going to be, you know, you and I have talked about uh, your, your, the, your, the project you're working on right now. Now, um, I know that one of your big interests is kind of, you know, the decision of how states go to war, when states go to war, and uh, sort of the momentum that events take on international systems. Uh, when you were working on Victoria 2, and you're, you're sort of looking at great power politics, uh, you know, in the Victorian era and leading up to World War I, um, you know, what were, what were, you know, what were you really hoping to capture about, uh, you know, that era and that kind of diplomacy? Well, I mean, the, the one thing about great power relationships, and well, particularly, some say, going to war, is that in strategy games, um, people tend to wait until they're pretty certain of winning. You know, you don't see people trying to take high dice shots unless something is, go you know, the game's going against them or something like this. But in real life, you tend to see, you know, decisions made which are, shall we say, counter-logical in a way, or maybe against logic, shall we say, because, you know, the decision to go into World War One, both sides felt that although they kind of could win it, there was not, not, not the kind of superiority that, was, you know, victory was guaranteed. So you could see a certain level of irrationality where other factors motivated the decision to go to war. And one of the biggest ones was this fear that they would be no longer considered a great power and become sort of prey rather than a predator. And that was sort of, that was something that uh, seems like you were trying to get across in Victoria too, with just the way your power status kind of determined your ability to function on the international market. Like I was always sort of amazed when I was sort of a secondary power 
and I managed to sort of break into great power status at how much easier everything suddenly became. And so it definitely sort of, that is a game that I think incentivized maybe rolling the dice more than other games because suddenly there were, there were big rewards if you could sort of break into that system and there were big penalties if you fell out. Well, yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, the original Victoria had the kind of concepts of great power and rank, but they were more cosmetic than anything else. So, yeah, it'd be nice to turn into great power. You've got that different thing around your shield and it looked very nice. But Victoria 2, we decided to try and make it matter more so that when it, you know, when it came down to this position, especially if you're like seventh or eighth and it looks like you might fall out, then you start, you know, going, okay, what do I do to stay up? And, you know, you start making, you know, risky decisions to try and stay up because the benefits were so good. And you got penalized if you dropped out. You know, it's it sort of seems like what great power politics do a little bit is, ironically, like every every paradox game is kind of driven by prestige. And and, and Troy, we've sort of talked about how it, it has its limitations in terms of being a motivating factor to guide a player through the game. Uh, but with with it's it's interesting looking back at like 1914 and seeing how much of decision making was sort of driven by considerations of appearance of of you know how your actions would would appear to this international community and whether you were comporting yourself uh with the sort of independence and belligerence expected of a great power yeah i mean it's to read all of the histories of uh the victorian age and really the the the, the post-Bismarck system, uh, you know, the, where Prussia sort of changes the rules by proving you can become a great power by making everybody else play by your rules, by conquering all of the neighboring states, forcing them into your own empire, humiliating one of the big dogs, and then pretending you're the great diplomat for the age, uh, which is what Bismarck did. The, the period 1871 uh, to the beginning of to the First World War really is this weird, almost pantomime of states putting on fancy dress, trying to prove that they're really great powers, even though they're really not. Countries like Austria, which are constantly you know, on the edge, and no one really believes they're great powers. I mean, Germany doesn't believe it, and France doesn't believe it, but they have this element of prestige that, from the past, and they're just too big to ignore, so they're kind of given a pass on it, but they don't have the same level of flexibility that, or, 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 or diplomatic credit they can call on that, say, Germany can or France can. And you see this in all the many crises that built up towards World War I, countries doing things that kind of make no sense if you think about it. You know, sending a gunboat to freaking Morocco just to say hi, more or less, to prove that, that France can tell you what to do. Um, the sort of ludicrous, I mean, it, it's faintly ludicrous when you think about it now. And this has sort of become this classic model of if you read like international relations theory and literature like i did for my phd for a long time this was often held up as kind of the model of what great power behavior was about what credibility was you got to keep your credibility and your credibility often means doing stupid things it seems like uh, things that are not always rational so a rational actor does irrational things to preserve credibility as a great power um, and you know, it's hard for a game to capture that because the real world isn't zero sum. You're often playing against a computer 
that does not recognize your authority. It will recognize, you know, your guns, but there isn't any mystique uh, mm-hmm. attached to prestige. Now, I like, th- because mystique's tied to all of these other things, there's, you know, I like how Victoria 2 got into some of that. And um, there's, a, there's no mystique-like power, which is about imperialism, I think, the game uh, kind of demonstrated. Um, and how it handled, you know, the weirdness of great power relations. But there is this what we mean by prestige and what, what even what a great power is. I mean, here's a little weird, stupid thing from my dissertation research. My research was on ultimatums, my PhD. And I had to, I was analyzing, you know, great power, international relations theories, but when realist theories, when ultimatums should work. To do this, I had to decide who was a great power and who wasn't. But I was doing this through statistics and I had to be fair and honest. So I had to like, I had to create a code. <laughs> I had to create like a mathematical code for who was a major power and who wasn't. And this was really a bad idea and it was very, very boring, but I did it. And I think that on its own earned me the PhD just sitting through stupid numbers. But, you know, I go back and look at the research and it's just, it's frankly ludicrous uh, that a great power could be just be measured by, you know, well, what's, what's, what's your GDP? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your, what's the size of your military? What international organizations are you a member of? Which is kind of what I was doing. Things like like Iran in the 90s has the capacities of a major power like France in like 1914, as far as how it can project its power more or less, Um, mathematically speaking. Though no one would ever think of of Iran as kind of a major power. Though as a a regional power, clearly it's it's significant and its actions matter. Um, so there's this, and it has prestige, but its prestige doesn't come from, it comes from these, from weird places. I think games have a hard time capturing that weirdness of great power politics, that arrogance of great power politics, the arrogance of the imperial experiment, which you see in like American foreign policy today, which you saw throughout British foreign policy in the 19th century, which you saw in everything Louis XIV ever did. And which I think the July crisis, you know, captures in spades with everyone certain they're making the right rational decision. And even as the car goes off the rails. Well, I'd also say with for the kind of, should we say, the Victorian era, the mark of a great power was being in the room. You know, when you held the discussions to find out, you know, like, for example, how the Balkans are going to end up after the Balkan Wars. You know, the Serbia and Bulgaria, they, they didn't even get to, they got to find out later. The great powers sat around and said, well, do these kind of borders and those kind of borders. And that was the real status symbol. You could get in the room when they were doing the carve up to make sure your interests were looked after. And the weirdness of that is in um, when the appeasement in 1938 and people condemned Chamberlain, for not having the checks there, signing their own death warrant, it just was not conceivable that a minor power would even be invited to the table. That just was not done. You could say it was probably the last great classic, you know, great power carve-up was Munich yeah. 1938, where the Absolutely. great power sat around and carved up another country without even asking them. You know, with, with when it comes to having crises sort of spiral out of control i think you you touched on something very important troy which is that in in a lot of games you're really going to be looking at it like just not only will the computer be looking at it uh in a certain way but but so will the player if uh if he or she is smart is that you just you just look at the raw calculations you know like you know how many how many men do i have 
what, what's my ability, what, what's my capacity to churn out more forces? How long can I fight this war? What are my objectives? It's all very simple. Um, but that also, what, what a lot of strategy games end up doing is they end up, they, they sort of divorce foreign policy from domestic um, in some in some really sharp ways. And so what you don't get are any, is really much any, any sense of like internal pressures leading to external behaviors. Which I which I find, um, I, I understand the problem, uh, but at the same time, I you know it, it definitely seems like there's you know th- that's a big part of the story for like the you know eighteen for the eighteen hundreds and uh, you know the outbreak of World War One is that each of the major players is not only contending with this really like perilous uh, international situation, but absolutely everybody is practically teetering internally. Like, every single government in 1914 has incredibly deep dysfunction. Probably the most together are the Germans, but their problem is it, it is basically a military um, you know, autocracy in some ways, and it's only as good as the people running it. Uh, so it, it looks sort of stable from the outside, but the thing is as every bit as neurotic as the people running it. Uh, but but that's, that's something you don't see very often. And Chris, I can't remember well enough how, whether or not Victoria does much with that. I know Victoria has a ton of ways to model the internal strife and awakening, you know, uh, awakening polities w- within a country. Uh, but w- I can't remember if they ever played a major role in foreign policy for me. Like if I ever felt like I, I, I don't, I, I know for know for a fact, I never found myself saying, you know, all bit of war would really bring this country together. There was in the scripts that when you first went to war, and especially in a great war, you'd get drops in militancy. So you would get a little bit of peace in the opening parts of wars, but it was never beca- never became a major factor in the game that your foreign policy was driven as much by domestic concerns, because then the whole game would be around you know domestic concerns and wouldn't really be enough out there for budding empire builders. And also, I mean, some of the parties, you know, would be like they would give you bonuses to your military budget. Yeah. And mm. that's how it was often reflected uh, in the game, uh, which I think was a good way to do it, to have, you know, militarist parties and revanchist parties. Um, uh, and I mean, I'm not going to say, I, I, I don't think I would necessarily agree that it's, that domestic and um, policy always is generally divorced from uh, foreign policy strategy. But, I'm, but I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example because it doesn't sound right. But I can't think of a good example off the top of my head of why it doesn't sound right, if that makes any sense at all. Well, you got benefits into your domestic policy from a successful foreign policy. You know, just for example, growths and prestige if you got yourself up the rankings or um, and things like this. But you know, there was no, shall we say, push, direct push that way that people were saying, no, we must have a colony in Africa type thing, otherwise we'll be really upset. I I am just I am just at a loss when I try to think of a case where. Um... I mean, I, I think of games like you know imperial, imperialism and civilization, where it's very loose, but generally, you know, happiness and need for goods uh, will often push you to declare a war you might not necessarily need, but you need to keep the happiness up, so you need luxuries. Uh, in imperialism too, uh, this was sometimes a thing, pushing for that extra resource. You know, you need those, you need those gems to keep your economy running, so you can keep making fur hats. Uh, 
Yeah, but, uh, but, I, but I kind of feel that, that but, but, but you're that's thinking like about a tangible but, but you're, gain from a war. Yeah, yeah, but you're thinking like, but as far as you know, domestic pressure to actually do something uh, in a war. I mean, the only examples I can think of are, are, are the total war games, and even there, those are just missions, right? The the Senate says you must declare war on, or the nobles say you must, and that's not really pressure or direction so much as the game saying, okay, you're you're not doing anything boring. Uh, time for the game to make you do something. And it's framed as domestic pressure. But it's not anything organic uh, to the game system. It's not something that builds out of the game. It's not emergent. It is, you know, an introduced mechanic. Yeah, I'd also say it's a kind of classic piece of game mechanics where you reward a player for a piece of behavior rather than punishing them for not doing something, which is always considered the better game design choice. You know, so I've been playing a bit of, uh, I've been going back to EU4 a bit lately, and something I have been enjoying is, um, you know, coalitions and rivalries, uh, but I, I think particularly coalitions, uh, something I, I, I do like about that game is it does sort of create the sense, not only, um, not not only does that serve as a handy break on someone sort of running away with the game, you know, if you gain too much territory too quickly in EU4, there's a big coalition against you, uh, whether or not you've done anything to some of your neighbors or not. Um, if you've just been a, 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 bad, a bad dude, um, you're going to find yourself the target of a coalition. Um, and you can sort of wait that coalition out, uh, which, which I'm less wild about, but... Something I do I, I do enjoy is that when you're dealing with someone who is really kind of out of control, someone who really does, you know, they have more manpower, uh, technologically they're even or ahead, uh, they've got the territorial advantage, um, you know, the, really if, if, you know, the balloon goes up, there's nothing to stop them. Uh, so something I, I, I found myself really enjoying in EU4 is there are times where I find myself, you know, looking looking at the state of play and thinking now would be a really good time for this war like it's it's not a guaranteed it's not a guaranteed uh thing at all but there's definitely moments where you're like we need to find a way to push these guys into a war so that the coalition will become active that like you just, you're just praying they will be dumb enough to you know to to take the bait and declare war and the coalition will come into play and you might still lose but you know you're just looking at trends and being like this is you know this might be if you if you're if you know if you're the next victim there's definitely incentive to be like this is our last opportunity to check these bastards um uh, yeah i mean it's here i'm speaking not as a paradoxical but as a big fan uh the co the coalition mechanics and the rival mechanics are really two of my favorite things about uh EU4, and because they do really, and especially since the, the, the changes in the most recent uh, expansion, Wealth of Nations, force you to pick nations of relatively similar strength to be your rivals. You can't just pick, I'm, I'm Spain, and I'm going to make Navarre my rival and firm them for prestige. It has to be someone, you know, pretty much in your weight class. Um, and you get some pretty nice bonuses for taking them on. I mean, you know, you get some some good press. You get some morale bonuses, and you can push that push your uh, power projection score up above fifty, and you can get extra diplomats and extra leaders. And there's really an incentive to you know push the great powers to fight each other. Um, do not have 
just a bunch of a, a yellow blob, a blue blob, and a white blob staring at each other warily and maybe fighting over Lorraine a few times. Um, some actual incentive uh, to, to beat the other one quite heavily. Uh, I'm playing a game right now as France, and I'm kind of hosed because, well, for a number of reasons. I mean, I've, I've done pretty good in Iberia, but Austria is now in a personal union with Russia. So I have to find a way to, and I'm, I'm allied with them now, but I know that's not going to last because because eventually, you know, the big German state in the north is going, I think it's Bohemia, Bohemia or Brandenburg, one of them is going to be a better ally or more useful friend than this huge Russian thing that owns the, the Netherlands once that inheritance happens. So I've got to find a way to get, to get out of this alliance and break it properly and get into a war almost immediately that they can lose. So do I make friends with the Turks? Do I make friends with the Steppes? Or do I side with the Swedes? And there's all of these machinations of hoping they get into a war that I can be, pretend to be a good ally on, that it provokes a coalition, like you say, against them. Then I can pull out of the alliance and join that coalition. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. Um, and it's just waiting for that right moment to stab people in the back. And it's, it's so all of these systems are playing in quite nicely. It's definitely a game that I, I think maybe that's why I ended up preferring it to a game like Crusader Kings 2. Well, they're so different games that they're, it's right. really kind of deceptive to compare them. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's, you know, as someone who just sort of um, really sort of fell in love with, uh, you know, the, the history of like, you know, power politics in Europe. Um, it, it's just it's it's so much more fun and so much more comprehensible doing these calculations um, where you can sort of look at the political map and sort of you know base your calculations on that. Um, it's a, it's a little trickier uh, when you're when you're digging through family trees and uh, you know trying to figure out if there's some sort of cousin relationship that's going to bite you in the ass. Um, so, so Chris, you're working on a science fiction game. Um, yeah, so yes, I guess I the question is, how does that's, I mean, you're a student of history, you've <laughs> All this great powers. I mean, a science fiction conquest game has a lot of the same issues in general, but you don't have the historical baggage to bring with it. So how do you use systems, or can you use systems, to capture you know, great empire politics, you know, Klingons versus Federation or whatever, uh, in the similar way? Is that possible or doable? Or even something you want? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we are aiming for that kind of thing, to enter the game. I mean, part of the reason why I picked science fiction was precisely to set myself free from the shackles of history and be able to, you know, be free to make my own systems without having to do a reference historical. But yeah, you know, we kind of, one thing that drives our diplomatic model is how your people see your neighbours. You know, do we like them or not? You know, and you can only go to war with people that you're, or neighbours that your people dislike. And you can, and part of what drives that is historical factors. So if they've been to war with you before, then your people score a bit of hate against them and makes it easier to go to war with them in the future. So we try and get these kind of historic things into the game because you know, in kind of popular memory more than anything else. Now, you mentioned... Um, well, actually, there's something... Just that brings something to mind. Um, wouldn't the counterexample be, though... That if you if you look at say uh, World War One, um, the, certainly there was no there didn't seem to be great enmity uh, between the UK 
and uh, the German Empire. And yet it's almost like it's it's a weird thing. You know, it, it sort of turns on a dime. And the moment they're at war, it's like, all right, well, you know, to hell with, to, to hell with the Germans. Let, let's kick their asses. Uh, well, I, I think you're ignoring the uh, German naval buildup in the in the previous 10 years where Germany started building dreadnoughts and threatening the Royal Navy. And that did set up a lot of popular unease in Britain. And people did start to was start to kind of become wary of Germany. So there were, in fact, historical factors there that kind of drove not just British foreign policy and its kind of entite with France and Russia, but also popular opinion became steadily anti, more anti-German in you know the 10 years before World War I. Yeah, there was a lot of speculative fiction written in Britain in the 19 first of 10 years of the 20th century about, you know, Germans declaring war on England, secret German waiters who have, you know, they've emigrated and they've become waiters and actually they have machine guns and rifles and all this stuff hiding and waiting underneath the restaurants. Um, you know, lots of popular boys' stories about going to war with Germany because of the Kaiser. He was, you know, this loudmouthed guy. He was the the yeah. he it's was also his intervention during the Boer War was another the, the, one where the, 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 the Boer War was yeah was a big problem. So I mean, it wasn't like this huge historical uh, animus necessarily, but you know, there was certainly a ratcheting up of tensions and distrust uh, at the popular level. There was also a good deal of of, of friendship. I mean, this was. Until, you know, the 1970s, the world economy had never been as closely linked as it was in the years before World War I. The most interdependent economies, more trade, more travel between countries, that's, you didn't get that level until the 70s. I mean, this was a really tightly knit world. So you did have a lot of friendship, camaraderie, and of course, all the royal families were related. Um, but at the popular level, there was there was a lot of weirdness. But I mean, you could also say, you know, in a different alternate universe, of course, of course, England was going to fight France because they had the Fashoda crisis, and England and France are historic enemies. So if World War One had started differently, um, we could certainly, I think, go back and point to a, lots of little data points as well. Well, you know, Britain's involvement though is actually really interesting, just because in some ways it wasn't so much about the Entente. Well, it, it's an open question as to whether that war could have been sold on the basis of the Entente, right? Belgium. Yes. Belgium made it easy. Belgium yep. presented Britain with a fait accompli. They had they had to go, um, and that's that's something else that's that's interesting, is that you know usually things are actually very much well. There's good reasons. I, I can imagine there's good reasons as a game designer for not like creating systems where like suddenly countries can have all sorts of like magic diplomatic conditions, right? Like you can, you can, you can guarantee the independence of a state in a uh, European universalis, uh, but you don't necessarily want players to be fiddling about with, with too many red lines, right? Like, well, if your armies cross, you know, cross the, uh, the Rhine, the, the, you know, that then, then we will intervene. But if, if Germany marches anywhere else, that's, that's fine. You did you don't play, necessarily the, did you play the first Victoria Rhine? No, actually, Victoria 2 was my intro to the series. Because the first Victoria, you could make a great power treaty. You, you, can, you could set the treaties with some neat specifications, you know, ruling out who you would defend them against. This ally, this alliance is targeted against a certain country. This alliance is defensive unless it is Turkey or Russia or whatever. So you could have, you know, a little bit of out, a few outs here and there. And it wasn't, you know, that 
the wasn't of course as fine-tuned as well this is a belgian treaty because there weren't all these mutual hundreds of treaties but there were there was a certain level of fine-tuning and that you could say well you know what germany i know your big problems with france so if you and France get together, yeah, we all go beat on France. But you know what? I'm really not interested in fighting Russia. So there you're on your own. And so you could leave Russia out of the agreement. Oh, that's interesting. Um, now, Victoria too, they took that out, probably for very obvious gamey reasons. But I thought it was an interesting way of trying to capture the network of alliances um, throughout the 19th century, many of which did have these sorts of conditions. If you read the sorts of treaties, you know, and the negotiations between uh, Russia and Germany uh, before the war, you know, where Germany's trying to get Russia on its side, trying to build this alliance of the three emperors, um, but trying to get them to throw France off. And it's not quite working out because Germany doesn't want to throw Austria aside. And, but Russia's kind of sticking to it. So they're trying to work out how, under what conditions would a treaty be operative. Um, and so there are, so at least one game has had that sort of, well, I'm your friend, but not quite now. In EU4 now, you know, there's, at least in the coming expansion, it's going to be uh, clear. Um, you can, uh, which comes out tomorrow, I'm not sure if it's in the wealth of nations or not. Uh, when you declare when you declare war it, and you call your allies, it tells you which allies are going to come, which ones aren't. It's not going to be a surprise. Um, so you're not, but the alliances aren't severed or anything. So even there, you have allies who come and allies who don't. Uh, but I, I kind of like the idea of really detailed treaties, but they're just so easy to game against an AI that only has AIs that can't think. You know, more than three moves ahead, uh, to coin a phrase. They, they're always such short... Most artificial intelligence is a very short term. They're not good at... This is why they can't play diplomacy, for one thing. They're not good at sacrificing in the short term for a long-term gain. Um, and I think this is the problem with having uh, great power treaties that go into this kind of sort of neat... Like you say... Oh, sorry, the Entente doesn't quite count, but damn it, now Belgium sucked me in. And that's all kind of cool. Um, and that's really one of the fun things about World War One is how many ways that countries could, different countries could have stayed out of it. Um, but here we are. Chris, yeah, I was... Oh, sorry, yeah. No, I was just going to, I was just going to ask about the, uh, the switch in diplomacy between Victoria One and Victoria Two. Maybe you could talk us through that a little bit. Well, it was actually a very simple decision. It was actually actually just what I was going to say when you when you when you came into your question was obviously the the more complicated a diplomatic offer is, the harder it is for an AI to evaluate how good it is. So an alliance, you know, I'll help you out in war. You can see, okay, how many troops do you offer up? Things like this. Um, an alliance, except against you know the people I really need it against, becomes very very difficult for an AI to actually try and work out is any good or not and also very difficult for the eye to construct offers to players as well. So, you know, simplifying it down the process makes the communication between player and AI a lot easier. And another more kind of observation, you know, about the British entry into World War One is there's kind of two kind of counterfactuals. If, if, Bel if Germany had only swung through a small part of Belgium, there's one where the Liberal government stays out. There's another one where the, the Liberals split 
and make an alliance with Boner Law's unionists and go into war anyway. So there was definitely, the, the, the unionists were calling for Britain to go into the war at the point of German mobilisation uh, on, on the side of the Antilles. So there was definitely, there was more than one way Britain could have entered World War One. And then again, there's just you know, there are those interesting uh, domestic situ- domestic policy uh, policies uh, affecting international relations. Uh, if if that government doesn't need to, if if that government weren't you know trying to manage a a, a divided cabinet and then trying to hold off the opposition, uh, you know who knows how how things would would have shaken out. Um, but yeah it definitely i can definitely understand uh, why why you don't get relationships like that it does seem though like uh you know it's it's interesting looking at how the german the german calculations into world war 1 uh, heading into world war 1 uh, seem fairly straightforward but they also seem like they're difficult to model in a game because what you have with, with germany at least is sort of this um is sort of a a, a long term uh, paranoia and suspicion about the way the the balance of power is going to shift and how it might end up shifting against them. Uh, you know, that Germany, you know, is, is kind of haunted by the prospect of uh, sort of a resurgent uh, Russia uh, just being able to swamp them at some point. And so the, re- the book I'm reading right now is uh, Max Hastings' uh, Catastrophe, 1914. And um, one, of the, one of the things that he returns to again and again is the Germans were convinced they were in their final two years of military superiority over Russia. They were convinced that in 1916, that was the tipping point. That's where Russia suddenly had the advantage. That's where, if you know, if you just looked at the way the Russian economy was booming, and weirdly enough, I didn't, I didn't know this, but apparently, you know, the late, the late Tsarist Empire was actually, you know, humming along in a lot of ways. Uh, it was just completely uh, a, a political basket case. Uh, but the, the, the Germans had this conviction and this is hard to replicate in the game, that you're going to hit a tipping point, and so you have to go now. Um, and it, it's, it's rare that you're going to have a... It, it seems almost impossible to design a system that is, one, so forward-thinking, that is constantly like just looking at those trends and projecting it forward and being like, well, okay, in 10 years, uh, this war will be unwinnable, so we should go now. Um, the, uh, the other thing is that it, it's, it's very difficult to have an AI, I think... Um, it seems like it would be difficult to have an AI that would choose an enemy and then sort of keep its attention and focus on that enemy for years and years and years and years, regardless of what else is going on in the game. You see this a little bit with, um, again, with the coalition system, is if you chill out and behave yourself for a while, the coalition against you will sort of crumble uh, just because people have other fish to fry. But if you, if you look at a map, the situation hasn't really changed. The, the, you know, the, the, the person who is the target of that coalition is every bit as dangerous as they were before. Uh, but suddenly the coalition is sort of just coming apart because people are forgetting that they're a danger, and that doesn't that that doesn't seem uh, like to, to quite match the way uh, great powers uh, certainly behave with with their constant uh, attention to what the trends are among themselves. Well, I mean, with the case of Germany and Russia in 1914, obviously Russia had announced this huge military modernization program. And the French had announced massive capital to build more railways in Western Russia to speed up mobilization. So, you know, the Germans weren't really looking at projection. They're actually looking at this kind of huge defense expending expenditure surge that the Russians were going to make. So then this was why 1916 was that kind of year, which I suppose could be 
done in a game if you have to kind of do more kind of forward kind of announcements of your policies. But the um, the kind of focus on one enemy is, it's you know like you know France obviously remained very very focused on Prussia for, you know from Germany from eighteen seventy one till nineteen well till nineteen forty five essentially. But you know their goal was to recover Alsace Lorraine. Whereas Bismarck, of course, was trying to put forward that Russia was a contented power. No, not Russia. Sorry, Germany was a contented power and there was nothing to fear from the newly expanded and united Germany. And he, he did pull off that trick as well, as long as he was chancellor. There's a school of international relations uh, that argues a great power war is much more likely when one power sees another one is about to overtake it. I forgot exactly That's what it's the called. Tragedy of Great Power Politics by uh, Kenneth. Hang on, let me put, pull this up. Well, you know, I mean, the other one is an interesting one with them. Um, if you compare 1908 and the Bosnian crisis that's, and 1914, that's the thesis. yeah, yeah, that's one mm-hmm. of Mearsheimer's. Yeah, uh, so but, so there's this entire theory about international relations that whenever one power, that great power war is more likely when one's about to overtake the other, either because one wants to keep the resurgent one down. Or one's trying to jockey, get ascend the pyramid. Once again, it's tied up to prestige. Um, but also, you know, it's. I mean, World War One is. the German-Russian thing, is, and the the focus. And, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the coalition thing, Rob, because it's kind of a, it's, a, it's a gameplay problem, right? You can't have the coalitions be permanent. Any of you for otherwise nothing gets done. You don't get the wars at all, because no player is going to. Advance if France is in a permanent and has a permanent coalition against it, led by Spain and Austria. That's going to be, you know, constant war or constant nothing. Uh, so you're stuck with this wonderful mechanic that really captures something essential, I think, of international politics. This f- this fear that grips countries and in a group. And and you can have this laser sharp fear, and then the coalitions just fade away and fade away if you just sit quiet for a while. Often, often sometimes it requires sitting quiet for a very long time, <laughs> uh, especially if they really, 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 really hate you. Um, but it's, I mean, I think of kind of games where there's been you no know, laser focus and hatred, and they're generally the ones with the simplest diplomacy models. Things like Civilization, you know, where there's always the one implacable enemy. There's somebody you've screwed pissed off and you don't know why. You don't know why, you know, the Danish hate you. You don't know why the Arabs hate you. You can't figure it out. It's been, you know, 500 years since you've taken their city. But they just will not let it go and they won't let it drop. And everything they do is directed against you. And, you know, you'll kind of feel like Bismarck, I guess. You know, come on. That was, you can't feel bad about Alsace-Lorraine. That was 20 years ago. You crazy? Uh, so there's so, but so, so the simplest diplomatic models, I think, sometimes have that less willingness to forgive because generally memory of memory of past actions is the only thing the AI has to work on, has to work with in many cases. Yeah, no, that's um, definitely the should we say the challenge with any AI system is not is trying to actually predict future actions rather than, you know, I mean, players could start going, oh, maybe an advance here would look good, maybe someone's going to move in there, but AIs have a, you know, have a far harder problem with those kind of calculations. Now, I, I'm, I'm really interested 
actually in the game you're working on, Chris, because when we were talking about it, you, you, you sort of described it to me as a, as a system where there would be some real inertia in international relations. Like, you couldn't just turn on a dime like you can in EU4. Like, EU4 is like, and, and it, for the era, it's actually really appropriate because it's kind of the era of the cabinet war in a lot of ways. Like, hey, you've got your opportunity. Like, go ahead, slip a shiv into their back while they're, while they're not looking. And it's totally cool, and your country rallies behind that. But, uh, but I do like this idea as well of you can't just say, all right, well, today, you know, today we are at war with East Asia. And we've you know, always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you, you, you can't pull that off. You need, to, you need to sell the war. You need to get everyone on side. And that's something that I don't think I've seen, really. And I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, kind of, uh, how, do you, how do you envision this working? Ta- talk me through, like, you know, how you, see, how you see an escalation to war working in the system you're building. Yeah, well, I mean, the the idea, the core idea is, and you know, in the kind of European Versailles era, you know, Wellington, you know, you know, gathers up his men who he generously calls the scum of the earth and sends them off to die. But you know, by the by the time you get into more modern era with a kind of you know more info, information rich society, you need to carry far more people with you when you go off to war. So before you can start the war, first you've got to you start a kind of propaganda campaign to vilify your opponent in the eyes of your people, which then justifies your aggression because it's it's actually obviously self-defense. You know, if we don't get them, they're going to get us type idea. So you start off with this kind of negative media campaign that will ratchet up and allow you to finally get, you know, enough kind of support from your people to go to war. Now, the nice thing about this is it's actually a forward looking value. You know, it's a description of a future war, which then allows the AIs to study and consider this. So the target of your kind of negative campaign can go, oh, oh. He's coming for me. I better, you know, get some more troops, you know, some more spaceships over to the border to defend myself. And other neighbours can go, well, if he's going after him, then I can go after my hated neighbour knowing that they're going to be too busy. Or do I kind of go and pick one of the targets to go, well, if they're going to go to war, then they're going to be distracted and I can jump in. So it gives the AI kind of forward-looking value to play around with. That's... And, and that seems really interesting. Now, is is there a reciprocal, is there a reciprocal uh, value to it? Like, for instance, if you, okay, so like, if well, take take like Germany and uh, Britain in uh, the 30s, right? Where as the Germans uh, get more and more bellicose and are using increasingly like apocalyptic language, there is an increasing uh, you know reciprocal factor of you know, holy shit, we're going to have to fight these guys. We're going to have to do this again. And so suddenly, like, you know, they're, they're, it sort of pays off on the other side. Now the other, the other nation is also much more likely to go to war because there's, or at least much more willing to take up the gauntlet uh, because there's kind of this, this sense that uh, they are the target of an incredible amount of ill intent and uh, public ill will. Uh, do, do you, does, 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 um, does sort of taking the offensive and preparing your people for war, does that also sort of serve to uh, escalate your neighbor's readiness? Not just in the terms of their calculations, but just in their ability, ability to, uh, in their ability to get behind a policy. Yeah, I mean, um, our values work on three very simple concepts, which is hate, greed, and fear. 
you know, basically hate. What have you done in the past? You know, fear, are you more powerful than me? And greed, are you weaker than me, basically? And if I start negative media against you, then you will automatically get some fear out of that, meaning that you are actually to whip my own people up to war against, well, to, for you to whip your people up, up to war against me becomes that little bit easier because I've started those acts against you. Because people know. Yeah, that's that sounds really that sounds really cool. Uh, it's just it's it's uh, I can't think of another game that's that's really operated like that. Troy, can you can you think of games where that have sort of modeled that uh, the the sort of march to war? Well, not really. I mean, I'm trying to think of most games like say, but they don't require a lot of. I mean, I think of games like um, I mean, the paradox of Hearts of Iron has an extent of you have to be some popular support for democracies generally where you can go to war. Uh, and that can be manipulated through events or through other things, but there isn't, you know, picking a, picking a specific target and working up to it. Um, I like what uh, you said, Chris, about how you know, in the modern age, you have to have more people coming with you. And I think a lot of the problem with a lot of science fiction games and their diplomacy is they just translate ancient diplomacy into the far, far future, and forget, you know, this is. A science fiction future where we're going to have our own values are going to either evolve or at least go with us. You're not going to have it's going to be at least Babylon 5 where there's a propaganda network at the very least. You're not just going to be able to tell people what to do. Uh, so we, it's, it's, I'm, it's, I'm looking forward to seeing how this works um, and especially the AI being able to anticipate what the target is uh, and let, so they know you're coming at them. Now if the AI knows you're coming at them, they can, I assume, do a propaganda war against you. Yes, and, and you will, would know that. And you would know that. Would this help mm. their defense in any way? Because you're now, they hate you more, or? Well, no, it just speeds, at the moment it simply speeds up this kind of process to war if both sides are kind of throwing right. into the pot. But, you know, the idea is, you know, that, you know, the everyone can see it coming you know it's 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 not really june 1914 it's more july 1939 sort of idea is there a way to slow down the march to war like can you make it like you can use um positive media to reduce fear and you can also actually do if if both sides are agreeable you can actually do kind of agreed diplomatic actions which will reduce the tension and then make the march to war longer so we can kind of agree to neutralise our border a bit so I can then go deal with Rob. And, we, and we'll both see this. If, if I'm a weak state being targeted by a strong state, that's a war I don't want yet. So I can send out my ambassadors of love, I guess, mm -hmm. to try to and slow it'll down. And slow down a bit, but you, you can't stop it. You know, we kind of felt that game mechanic-wise, if you could stop someone declaring war, war on you whenever you liked, right. then it... You know, we kind of lose an, an X somewhere along the way in our four Xs. So it's 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 it's, it's a countdown timer to war, kind of like the yeah. the, the, the the crisis mechanism in uh, Victoria Two, where it builds up and eventually you got to pick a side. And, yeah, well, the, uh, the doomsday clock's going to uh, build. Yeah. Okay. Can you just say? Is there a point though where you can like? I assume though you still do ultimately have the choice of going to war or not, whether or not you've you've got everything ready. Like, I imagine there's a point where the light may not be green, but it's yellow, and if the timing's really propitious, you can still just be like, "Screw it, like we're doing it." Uh, no, there's basically there's a hard limit. You know, there's you've got to reach this point before your people are willing to say, "Yeah, let's go to war." 
but you know, partly just to make sure that you know the AI AIs deal very badly with surprise attacks. It's one of those really hard things to kind of code in. So we said, no, there's no yeah. surprises. It's all out in the open. You can see them, you know, ticking up and ticking up, and finally they're going to get there. And you is know, there, just uh, is there a point where? So I have to wait to see the game. I have to look forward to checking it out. This is kind of tying back to the whole popular outrage thing. Because um, this is, of course, a big problem in the 19th century with very bellicose populations wanting, always wanting the country to be fighting somewhere. Um, you know, the, the Boer War for a long time was this, the Zulu War. The British were always getting pretty angry about why are we fighting anybody today. Um, where you've built up the tension so high and you've changed your mind, you don't want to go to war, but you're kind of forced into it by your people. No, you're not forced into it. You know, again, we kind of shied away from that kind right. of, you know, compulsion thing. Right. But there is a kind of thing that, you know, your kind of work has also upset your opponent. So they might just go to war with you anyway. So we should talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the final stage of these things and, and the way games handle it. I think, Troy, you and I have always sort of enjoyed the way um, Pride of Nations handled its sort of uh, outbreaks of uh, the Great War in that you had basically this little card game pop up yeah uh, which did not necessarily explain itself the best it took you a while to sort of figure out what's going on but it did it did get across the sense of the the sort of brinksmanship you could play and it becomes it becomes a uh, push your luck game where you know you can you you can basically walk away with the pot uh if you get everyone else to back out but if everyone likes you know decides to go like okay screw it you know i call uh, and the war breaks out. Now you're now you're in deep trouble. Now you've escalated it way beyond. Uh, you know what you you've raised the, you've raised the stakes way beyond uh, where it started. Uh, and I always thought that was that was a really cool uh, that was a really cool take on on the way those those crises played out uh, among great powers. Yeah, I mean it's it's really about it, it's a this great poker game you're playing in Pride of Nations. Only you're really you're betting your prestige is what it comes down to. It's how much is this worth to you? And you're trying to convince everybody else that it's worth more to you for it to be resolved in your favor, in the favor of your alliance, than it's worth it to them. Um, way back in the mists of time, balance of power, Chris Crawford's balance of power, was sort of set up like that. There would be crises, and the Soviets and the Americans would, you know, they'd stand up, and how far would they stand up? And the longer the crises went on, the more each side had to gamble. Um, pushing it further and further towards nuclear war, uh, the more they pushed, but if you didn't want a nuclear war to happen, someone would have to back down. Um, but you didn't want to back down too much because you also wanted to get a high score. So there's this huge tension there. Uh, so this, I love the idea of you have to of, of betting your prestige because uh, it raises the big thing, the big problem which we started with this prestige question is what every country is afraid of and what you know Dick Cheney is constantly afraid of the humiliation. There's nothing worse than a country being humiliated. Um, this idea of national embarrassment. And Pride of Nations kind of got that. You're like this really crappy card player, and you've been caught out in this terrible bluff. Um, and to actually accept the fact you've lost face is kind of hard. Um, and sometimes you've got to fight anyway. Sometimes, sometimes you really, really mean it. Um, and sometimes you don't have the resources to me. Sometimes you really mean it, and it's really important to you, but you don't have the resources to push. 
so it got some, some really tough cases. And, you know, Pride of Nations has a lot of problems with its interface. It's not a game I recommend easily because it is just such a bear to understand with so many menus and the turns take so long to resolve. But the crisis system is just this beautifully elegant, neat idea that I kind of give uh, Philippe and the rest of the Ajod crew a lot of credit for. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, I, I liked the game a bit more than you did. I think it actually it actually got a lot of things about imperialism in that entire era. I, th- I think it did a really yeah. good job of, of channeling the flavor. I think ultimately what started to turn me off it um, was I actually liked it a lot when I was reviewing it. And it was yeah. one of those things where because for a week, that was all I had to do. So I just sort of got into the flow with this game, and it was pretty cool. And I tried to go back to it later, and I realized just how much shit there is to do every turn. Uh, and and it, it sort of grinds to a halt, but I but I still I still kind of love that uh, that that crisis system. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, of course, we we got to talk about Victoria too, which also has this has the sense that uh, after a certain point in the game, the Great War is coming. Now you don't know what it's going to be, but you know, Armageddon is is coming for the great powers, uh, and you know I think that was a, that was another interesting approach. Now, now, Chris, talk talk me through a little bit of how that system is designed, and uh, what you know what 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 assumptions you you brought to it. Well, the what the well Victoria Two is what the Crisis System Heart Heart of Darkness you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the idea we kind of had was that. If you look at the crisis uh, as the gate, you know, as you got closer and closer to World War One, you see more and more participants in them. So what we had this idea of is that staying out of a crisis or losing a crisis, the prestige cost would gradually rise as the game went on. So in the early game, you know, there's some dust up in the Balkans. You're kind of going, no, I, I don't really care about this. I'm, I'm just going to walk away from it. But then as the game goes on, your status as a great power kind of requires you to have your finger in every pie type thing. And eventually it comes to a point where, you know, the prestige costs have reached so high that you really can't risk backing down and you will kind of get World War One type thing. So we wanted this kind of driver of this notion that more and more prestige goes on the line as the game goes on. What's interesting is that you know, like you never know which is going to be the crisis that pushes it over the edge, and and I think that was that was another interesting thing. You know, like you know, it, it just like just like you know, when you read the history, nobody knew at the time that you know the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was, was the, like this was going to be the thing uh, that, that finally blew everything to hell. Like the you know immediately after the after the killing, uh, the diplomatic reaction in a lot of capitals was was fairly slow and not necessarily serious. Uh, and I, I I do like that you can you can sort of skate past a number of crises in uh, in Victoria Two in, in the Heart of Darkness expansion, uh, and then it you know just weird stuff uh, can happen. Now at the same time, I've also seen some in some ways I, I, I seem to remember some like fairly like anticlimactic uh, great wars just because because of the geography the the like because of whatever the epicenter was of the crisis sometimes you could get a great war where it kind of resolved quickly because it was almost un, you know it was almost unwinnable uh, for 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 anyone else and so like you know I think I had one great war where it broke out over Czechoslovakia uh, for for some reason and uh, it was it was kind of resolved with um, 
you know, w with Germany and Russia kind of pummeling each other to death over uh, what was left of Bavaria and its uh, little rump Czech empire. Uh, and once once that was over, it was kind of like, well, OK, I guess that was that was our great war, everybody. Good job. Well done. Uh, we, we didn't we didn't destroy Europe. Yeah, well, you don't really have too much control over these kind of things. But yeah. in our own little um, tribute to Gavo Princip, you you actually had that the um, the little powers could actually stir up crisis themselves. You know, you could use your kind of diplomatic, inf you know, once, no, you want your national focuses to kind of create a crisis where hopefully you would gain some territory. Yeah. And it also gave small countries a kind of route to an expansion initially you know we're kind of looking at a country like greece which obviously is kind of soft options for expansion are very very limited for greece and you know so you kind of got to sit you know in victoria too at first you're just sitting around waiting for the ottoman empire to hopefully helpfully collapse but now you could kind of use your national focus start stirring up crisis in greek territory and hopefully the great powers would come along and back you up well and that's and it does get at sort of this this is a cool thing, uh, you know, about this game. It, you know, we we talk about things games get right, and I think you know, Troy, you mentioned like you know the the case of like the the late Habsburg Empire. You know, they aren't really a great power, but they're they're kind of sort of given a merit of status, and on paper, in some yeah. ways, they still are. And I think one thing I really like about Victoria too is it, it sort of captures that duality of prestige versus. Um, versus actual ability to 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 actually do things uh and so something i really liked is occasionally you would find yourself it made it really convincing and that when you are a when you are a great power but you're on the wane so much of your so much of your effort just goes into maintaining your holdings against things like what chris was just talking about where like oh shit like the you know the the, the serbian nationalists are demanding uh you know yet more territory and somehow this has become the cause celebrate you know around europe and everyone's lining up over whether i should give this province back and you know damned if i'm going to do it but i can't I, at the same time i can't keep trading territory away uh and and i kind of i kind of like that sense that like you know for 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 powers that are sort of on the decline like the austrians and the ottomans um the, the these little nationalist movements and and these small countries it just becomes this death by a thousand cuts where every you know every few years you're having to you know suit up over yet another territory that wants to go join, you know, its its ethnic brethren across the border. And, you know, I think of games like imperialism, uh, where, you know, great powers, you can become a really good great power, and then the technology shifts, and you don't have enough iron, you don't have enough coal, you don't have what it takes to keep up economically or technologically. So you have all this great, all these great colonies or relationships but you end up having to buy too much stuff from the other powers and once they cut you off you're a paper tiger uh so you have this this a country that's that's punching way below its weight that looks really impressive and then you take a look at their economy and so oh, this is a basket case i mean they've been they've been ruling the roost for the last you know 60 years and now that we need now that wood isn't quite good enough anymore now you can't just beat people with wood you have this, um, and oil, they don't have any oil, and this in civilization a lot too, countries don't have oil, they're kind of hosed after a while. You can see the, the tension between these, the, how great powers can just fall apart through forces they don't have a lot of control over, like, you know, nationalism, like greedy neighbors, 
greedy little stupid elf countries like Serbia or Greece or Bulgaria picking at them. You can uh, send your letters to... Yes. <laughs> yes, to Troy Kutfeld. It's care of three moves ahead. <laughs> if, if there were elves, the elves would live in Serbia because Serbia's magic. That's what I'm talking no, about. elves live in Iceland. I actually read that in BBC. That, that, that's, so. This is true. Uh, and uh, so we have... In other games, it's you know the economic shifts. So long-term economic shifts can turn against a great power. And when you are playing one of those games and it's you... You find out you're the guy that doesn't have... It's bad enough not to have iron in civilization. To find out you don't have any aluminum or any oil. Just to realize you're really up against it. And you've got to hope you have a science lead so you find out early you don't have oil, you don't have aluminum. So then you can go to war to grab them. So you can be Japan in like the 1930s. So you can go and grab the resources you need. Uh, But you have to realize that first. Because so the other countries can't take advantage of what they've got, so there are these tensions that I think. And when we define what a great power is, you know, the economic part is such a big part of many of these games. Um, you know, a lot of the science fiction games don't have as many things to do with resources. I mean, Galsiv is not really a resource-heavy game uh, when you think about it. That's got a pretty decent diplomatic model. It's really about culture and that sort of stuff. But uh, I mean, the Victoria Two and the, the the weak and crumbling empires are always interesting to watch in the long term historical games. And I like watching them in games like Civ or Imperialism because they are abstract. They are they're fake histories. They're phony histories. But just you know to watch you know a once oppressed Spain you know come back through its resource might and finally eliminate the vicious Aztecs who have been keeping them down for so long. Uh, there's it's there's a bit of poetry to that in the games through these through the the randomness uh, that pops up and I, I mean I still think imperialism has you know some of the best best of everything best emergent crisis mechanics best path of history best stories I won't go as far as our friend Tom Chick and say it's the best empire building game ever made but it's certainly one of my favorites. Um, and I think part of it is because you can watch, the economies are also exposed. So you can see who has, who is developing iron mines and who isn't developing iron mines and who isn't, who is not developing iron mines fast enough and who will be a threat and who won't be. And that, you know, it's kind of like what Chris said about his game. You can think into the future over where the wars should be fought and will be fought. So, we should be winding it down, but there's something I wanted to, uh, you know, put to you guys because, you know, I think we, we talked a little bit, we talked a lot about Paradox Games, for instance, and, uh, you, you know, Chris, uh, you know, you, you're part of a new studio, but at the same time, I'm, I think I can call you part of a the Paradox lineage in some ways. You, you helped build it. I, I did um, a few years of service. You yeah. Know. I, did, I did my time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and so I just wanted to ask because because Chris, Chris you're working on a on a four X uh, style game and I and I just wanted to ask you guys like is there is there qualitative difference in the diplomacy in say a four X versus like uh, in EU four whereas like in a four X a lot of times diplomacy is happening a little bit in the dark you don't even fully know who you're dealing with or who you're talking to and this is true in space games like you can be tut you can be on the very edge of a great empire or uh you know or really talking to you know basically you're you're dealing with a you know a very small country you you, you don't necessarily have a good sense of that when you meet them uh, you don't have a good sense of the geography and and who is deployed where it's it's hard to get that feeling which also means that. 
it's harder and i think in some ways for me at least a little less rewarding to delve into diplomacy to a great extent in your typical 4x because like it, it, it it's so uncertain in in its return in a lot of ways whereas like eu4 it, everyone's kind of trapped in this together right like and that's doubly true of victoria uh where there's there's no more room there, there's no more room. It's just what's going to happen is consolidation. It is it gets increasingly zero sum. Uh, your gain is is to some extent someone else's loss, and that drives a lot of interesting conflict. Uh, that I think 4x with its, with its uh, at least promise of uh, you know expansion and uncertainty about uh, what's out there can diffuse that uh, tension a little bit. And I just you know wanted to see like first of all, do you guys think that is a fair characterization? And uh, Chris, like if if there is a difference with 4x diplomacy uh you know how do you how do you how do you plan on um how, how do you plan on approaching that making it a little easier for for players to uh to, to make those calculations well i mean firstly i mean we actually made a conscious choice to keep the diplomacy system fairly simple you know this was partly kind of part, one of the main things that drove it is um, there's only two of us you know we, we don't actually have that much resources and if we sank it all into this huge diplomacy game we wouldn't have any time left to make the rest of the game so that's um so partly it's down to shall we say design choice how much do I, how much time and effort do i want to devote to a system like diplomacy for example but i think the other thing is how much information do you choose to expose to players I mean, one thing we have done in our game is that through the joys of telescopes, you know where all the solar systems are. And through keeping an eye on people's news, you find out what they've colonised. So you actually start to see their expansion, see who's out of room to expand and all these kind of things as you enter into diplomacy with them. And that was a choice we made to give players additional information. Troy, just wanted to see if you wanted to weigh in on some of my original yeah, premises. Yeah, I'm just thinking of this, but there's a difference about... with. I mean, there's, there's, there's clearly a difference in diplomacy when you have to create a game where just a technical resource, the, the AI has to go out and find things and that, but also the experience uh, is different because in a game like you know, EU4 and all every everything that's clearly historically based and historically centered, as opposed to something like you know, Imperialism or Civ or Galsiv, where there's all this other stuff. You have to go and find the world and make the world, etc. A fixed map comes with expectations. And I think a lot of the expectations uh, transfer to the, the, into the, the, the diplomatic systems. It's why you have, I mean, you can think of the, if you want to look at the Paradox games, all of the big series have very different diplomatic systems. And they all have personality but they're all very, very different from each other because they're drawing their personality from the era that they're reflecting. You know, Crusader King's diplomacy is actually quite negligible. There's not a lot of diplomacy there. You know, you, you marry somebody off and you fabricate claims and all the diplomacy is really with your subjects. There's no like, international diplomacy to any extent. Your diplomacy is with your subjects, which is a very different relationship than with a titular equal. Uh, you look at something, I mean, you compare that, to, so it's very different from EU4. There's a written from Victoria where you have a diplomacy which has to be, which isn't, EU4 is really all about foreign relations. And there's an exploration, but it's really about grabbing as much of the world as you can from the other guys. It's all about foreign relations. And so are most 4X games. Civilization is all about foreign relations. 
Galsiv is all about foreign relations. EU4 is all about foreign relations. There's nothing else going on there besides you're interacting with other states and there's going to be wars and you can't get, you can't really avoid wars. EU4 is the most traditional, I think, of them. Victoria, it's not. Victoria, you're mostly dealing with your own country. There are going to be wars, of course, but the big focus is getting your own country up through the levels. And Hearts of Iron is, you know, it's a war game. So it's just folks in very small fact. So, you know, the Paradox games are kind of unique, but it's, a lot of it is because they are just so focused and well-designed around their own little worlds. Whereas, you know, 4X is this this broad palette of go out and do stuff. And you're going to run into people who are going to want to do stuff to you. And so there's the interaction is really so much of the charm of those games. Yeah, you discover new techs, and you explore things, and you kill aliens or barbarians or mind worms. But they're really about very simple interactions with other people, doing other simple interactions. So I, I think that's really... I think that I mean, I think that's kind of what the difference is in the the fixed world historical type things. That there is a setting, and you have to be true to the setting in some unique way. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I would say you know one of the challenges with a historical game is the history, because you know you one of the first things you've got to do is sift through things and go, okay, what do I think is going to be? What do I think is important? And then, of course, you're going to get like 10,000 people coming on the internet going, no, you've got it wrong. This is actually far more important, but that's a different kind of thing. And then you've got to try and, you know, realize these into game mechanics. But you will always have to abstract in a kind of historical game. And that those kind of abstractions are then kind of the things that drive stuff like your diplomacy design and things like this. So I think the... Uh... I think the time for diplomacy has passed, and and we should be winding the show down and uh, preparing for our August mobilization. Of course, yes. Um, I've I've I'm, I've got some war games uh, on the docket that I'm looking at right now. I'm taking a look at uh, Guns of August and uh, Commander Great War, yep. uh, which uh, that one I think we will end up doing a show on. Uh, yes, it, it I think I really recommended. I really think we should. Yeah, so we're we'll looking at Commander Great War uh, for certain, and we're probably also going to be looking at. Uh, we we might actually go outside the war, the war game and uh, strategy game genre a little bit to talk about other ways uh, the war has been represented. Uh, it's really you know, with the Red Baron series, I'm not sure there have been very few flight sims that caught as many people's imaginations as Red Baron did, uh, and so that might be worth addressing. Uh, so well, the, it's, only, it's, the only good World War One flight sim is Wings. Everyone knows that. I you know, I think there would be a lot of people that there are a lot of people who live and die now now by um by rise uh, of flight. Yep. Uh, which is good because it, those the those old those old fighters are the only ones that are simple enough for me to control without crashing every five minutes. So that's that's great. There's uh, nothing like a plane that predates effective avionics. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, so that'll do it for our show. Uh, Chris, Troy, thanks so much for uh, breaking into your weekday uh, to talk about this topic. It's been a fantastic discussion. Always fun. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the show, Rob. Thank you for inviting me along. Absolutely. And uh, as always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this together on short notice due to uh, some a, a bit of a chaotic week. Uh, but we will be, we'll be back. we'll be back on schedule for next week. Uh, we'll be looking at hegemony. Oh, is it hegemony? Rise of Rome. 
Uh, hegemony, Caesar, Rise of Rome. Or hegemony, Caesar, or hegemony, Rome, Rise of Caesar. Something like this. Well, it's the new hegemony game with Romans, and that is something that is relevant to Troy's and my and my interests. So we'll be we'll be looking at that next week, uh, and then after that, uh, the Great War. Uh, but until then, uh, this has been three moves ahead. Good night, everybody. Bye. Good night.